Love Extra Virgin Podcast? You can support this show and help keep us ad-free through the coffee supporter feature. It's just like buying us a cup of coffee. It's totally up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the coffee link in the show description to support us now. Welcome to Extra Virgin, a podcast for gourmands who love to travel and travellers who love good food. I'm Natasha Mirosh. And I'm Sam Donsky. Between us, we've toured and tasted our way around more than 60 countries. Join us now as we meet the passionate people who make travelling the world so rewarding and so very delicious. Hello and welcome. Today, Sam, we have a very special guest who's going to talk to us about how we can incorporate Australia's ancient Indigenous foods into our everyday cooking and how these foods can play a role in good health. Yes, I know the keen cooks amongst us will be so interested Plus, Natasha will hear how learning more about these foods and the traditional stories around them can help grow our understanding of the oldest living culture in the world. Our guest is Dale Chapman, a chef and advocate of ancient foods and of traditional well-being. Dale created her business, My Dilly Bag, more than 20 years ago, working with Aboriginal communities that grow and harvest bush food ingredients, as well as Aboriginal artisan creators. Welcome, Dale. Oh, thanks very much. First up, Dale, can you explain what's meant by the term bush foods? Well, I googled up what Wikipedia said and bush tucker, also called bush food, is any native to Australia and used in sustenance of Indigenous Australians and the Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander peoples. But it can also describe any native fauna or flora used in culinary and medicinal purposes regardless of the continent or culture that it comes from. And, yes, that's true, but I'd like to think that real bush tucker food is sourced directly from our mob Indigenous Australians that tell the story of the connection to the people, the lands, the sea, the waterways, the plants and the animals. So, for me, bush food should be sourced directly from those Indigenous peoples. We're going to talk a little bit about some of those interesting ingredients in a bit, but first, Al, talking of stories, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and where you grew up? Sure. I was born in a little town called Durambandi, which is southwest Queensland, which is Yallier country, which is almost on the border of New South Wales and Queensland. Guamu or Kuma is my other tribal group, which is near Bolland, so they're all pretty close to each other. And we grew up on the Bolland River. I now reside on Gubby Gubby Country and operate bush food business at Forest Glen on the Sunshine Coast. And the reason of moving to the Sunshine Coast is my mother was born here. We holidayed here as kids and we settled here in about, I think it was 1975, I was 13, and I've been here ever since and I love this space. Dale, as well as being a chef, you're a cookbook author, public speaker and lecturer. You're active in Aboriginal affairs and are a member of the Queensland Indigenous Chamber of Commerce and of Slow Food International, and you're an adjunct senior fellow in the School of Agriculture and Food Sciences at the University of Queensland. Food and culture is clearly central to your work. Tell us how you came to your career in food. Oh, well, a big family, learning off my mum. Basically, I was cooking around the campfire at the age of four and learning from my parents, but in particular mum, who was and still is a great cook. 
She can make food go kilometres. She's marvellous. She can take two carrots and a half a stick of celery and a chicken carcass and stretch it out to feed 10 people. (laughs) Mum's desire to make every meal a treat for us kids was what inspired me to continue cooking and to be a chef and have it as a career. I imagine, Dale, when you were going through your apprenticeship to become a chef, that there weren't a lot of Aboriginal chefs and, in fact, there still are not a lot of Aboriginal chefs in Australia. Why is that and did it make it difficult for you? Well, I think when I started in, I think, 1979, I think it was, there were Indigenous chefs doing apprenticeships. But as we got older and people get involved in family life and things changed and we all know that hospitality is quite tough business to be in, you know. You're working evenings, you're working weekends while all your mates are having the weekend off and swimming and, you know, playing golf or whatever they do. But chefs, we are at the helm and we're forever trying to catch up, I guess, with our mates. So it was difficult from time to time, but my love of food and my willingness to learn off other people, like when I started at the Greek Club in Brisbane, just learning off a lady there called Rini, and she would teach me all about traditional foods that was part of her Greek upbringing. And that's what kept me interested was all the varieties of different foods and eventually turning them into a career for myself in bush foods. And then what inspired you after that to go from being a chef to wanting to share your passion and knowledge about the oldest food in the world? I really wanted people to understand that bush tucker has sustained our peoples for hundreds of thousands of years and it still does. Aboriginal health has been appalling since invasion and we must take a look at our ancestors' way of life before then. A healthy people, you know, healthy generations of Indigenous mob back before then and learn from the past and bring it back from the brink of extinction because that's what I'm really about is How do we keep learning off our elders? How do we learn all of that information and keep it going? But I remember I was working head chef at Cafe Le Monde in Hastings Street, Noosa, and this lady came along with a little tomato, and it was a little bush tomato from Central Desert, so up there where Uluru and across into Alice Springs. And this little tomato, I just looked at it. It was like a little wrinkled up sultana. And I looked at it and I had a taste and I went, oh, my goodness, this is something that's so unique. It was the first time I'd actually really seen something like that because I hadn't travelled a lot because you do your apprenticeship, you just get out there and keep going and stay in Queensland until you're done. So I hadn't travelled anywhere to see what other bush foods. I knew our bush foods in Queensland, but not a lot about the rest of the continent. And this little tomato had so much going for it. No one knew anything about it. And that's what got me started. Yeah. That's fascinating. I'm sorry, I'm hijacking you a little bit here, Dale. But (laughs) I wanted to ask you this question because I've been thinking about it 
for quite a long time, actually. I find it fascinating that in our wellness industry that has grown up lately around health, here in Australia, we import all these products like goji berries and maca powder and all sorts of things from all over the world. And you go on social media and it's full of glamorous people promoting these products. Yet here we are in Australia with some of the most powerful natural health-giving produce in the entire world. For example, I know that the kakadu plum has the highest level of vitamin C of any fruit in the world. So my question is, why aren't we embracing that and shouting it from the rooftops? Well, when you speak about the bush food industry in Australia, even though Aboriginal people have been consuming it for, like I said, hundreds of thousands of years, we are a young industry at the moment. And back when I started 20-odd years ago, there wasn't many Indigenous people doing bush food. I think there was five of us that I could track down. And the rest were non-Indigenous people. And you're right, there is so much nutrition, you know, high vitamin C, iron, potassium, just flavour everywhere, sodium, niacin, all through our Indigenous plants. And unfortunately, I guess there's a few things that go with that. One is that our industry, as I said, is young. The second thing is a lot of lands were destroyed. Cattle was put on here, goats, camels, sheep. So they destroyed what was there. They ate most of it themselves, the animals. And also we brought in other crops like wheat and sorghum. So... It was a really hard thing for the industry to start building it up. But as we started to identify and work with Indigenous communities, that's when we started to realise that there's a rich source of agriculture here and how do we tap into that? So, like I said, Indigenous people have only become 1% of the bush food industry. So as we grow as an industry, I believe Indigenous people are going to be a stronger force in that because we need to tell our story because everywhere I've been when I've been overseas, everyone says to me, oh, and what's the story behind that fruit and where does it come from and how did they harvest it? So that's the information that I've had to glean and learn and source from my elders throughout my career. And that's what people want. They want a story. Looking at these foods from a culinary perspective, there's definitely been a demand for many of these ingredients in Australian restaurants, and that seems to be growing, albeit slowly. But how can we incorporate more of these power-packed bush foods into our everyday eating? You know, you can grow these ingredients right in your own backyard. You can source them locally from nurseries. So I always say there's no excuse not to have a bit of bush food on the table because it is there. I wrote a cookbook to teach people just how to take those ingredients and how to utilise them in everyday recipes. So there's opportunity and more and more people I'm finding are really embracing that. They really want to start putting bush foods into their everyday recipes and that's where it starts when I first started all I did was take a really great recipe that either my mum designed or I found or had been cooking for years and then said okay well how do I adapt that recipe and how do I put bush food into it still make it taste great but really have a sense of the Australian environment the Australian bush in there 
I always tell people, you've got to step outside your comfort zone. You've got to just let go a little bit. And the other trick, I think, with native ingredients is less is more. So our flavour are really punked, you know, they're really packed in there. So when you're first starting with native ingredients, just have a little bit and then you go, oh, I really like that. I can actually add a bit more to that next time. And then you'll find just the perfect mix for your recipe. Could you give us a couple of examples of things that people could plant themselves? In Queensland and New South Wales, we grow the lemon myrtle tree. And the lemon myrtle is very much like lemongrass. It has a lemon-lime flavour. The leaves are what you use. The leaves are very glossy and green. When you crush them in your fingers, you can smell this lemon and lime flavour coming out of them. They're very oily, so they distill into an oil as well. But you can just grab a couple of leaves, put it in a cup, pour hot water over it, Let it steep, have a cup of tea with it. It's calming, it's sedative, it's antibacterial, it's antifungal. And the beauty about it is you can just keep refreshing the pot and keep having more and more. It's very giving. The other thing you can do with the leaves of lemon myrtle, anise myrtle, cinnamon, curry myrtle, is grind them up and add them into biscuits, flour, damper, infuse them into coconut milk, for example, and make like a lovely luxa. They're a bit like a bay leaf, I suppose. They'll infuse in whatever liquid that you're going to put them in. Okay. What about some of the more unusual things? Like, for example, I had a recipe recently that called for wattle seed and I, I yep. you know, didn't have ready access to that. <laughs> yeah, but you yeah. can track down those things presumably. I think there's 1,200 different species of acacia trees. Most of them are edible but it all comes back to having a viable crop all the time. So if we're going to put something out there in the arena for domestic and international use, we need to really make sure that they are a viable crop and that they're going to be readily sourced. So I use Acacia Victoria and Acacia Marinana. These bottles all come from South Australia or Victoria. Queensland is starting to build their own wattle seed industry. There's a few tricks with wattle seed. You must roast it and grind it, or at least roast it, because there's a little hard seed on the outside, so the only thing that can really get into it is a bird with his nice sharp beak. So you have to roast it and you'll hear it crack and it roasts away in a dry pan and you think that it's burning, but it's not. So you need to get it quite toasted. I pop it in ovens when I've got fresh sauce and roast it for about 15, 20 minutes in a a 350-degree oven so it's quite hot or put it in a fry pan and do it that way. Then you can grind it and there's a couple of different methods. You can pop it in with your dry ingredients like a damper or biscuit and things and let it cook in there and the flavour can be quite nutty coffee chocolatey kind of flavors or you can seep it in hot water sugar water and that way the flavor is going to intensify and you can use it that way as well but what i love about wattle seed it's a low uh, glycemic index so it's low gi it's high in dietary fiber 
and very beneficial for people with diabetes. We discovered this because of working with Aboriginal communities and looked at their use and the conditions of their health. So it's been a really great journey for us to identify benefit for Indigenous ingredients. I actually have a very big wattle tree near me, well, an acacia tree, and mm. uh, I look at it all the time and go, oh, I just don't know. Is that is that an edible one? Is that going to be good yeah. if I harvest it? It's just got so many pods yep. all the time. But, yeah, I just don't know enough about it. Yeah. The best thing to do if you want to identify a plant is Take the bark, the flower, leaf and any seed or fruit or whatever that you might be identifying and take it to one of the local, you can use herbatoriums, of course, in your local communities. But the other thing is take it to one of the nurseries or land care or someone Mm. like that who might be able to help you identify it. But there also is a lot of stuff on Google and you can identify a lot of waddles just by those few things, you know, the bark, the seed, the pods, the flower, the leaves, etc. And I go across the board with that, whether it's a plum tree or a desert lime or whatever it might be that's how I identify you mentioned desert limes and finger limes there those are definitely ingredients that I've been seeing becoming more popular and Mm. sometimes popping up in recipes sometimes I've seen them at the shops so how can I use those ingredients yeah I love finger limes I just cut them in half and squeeze and roll the end and they pop out like little citrus caviar. You can pop them on the oysters. You can put them down the neck of a Corona. You can (laughs) throw them into a nice creamy sauce and have a beautiful cream sauce or butter that goes with your fish. Because they're so delicate too, when you heat them, they will eventually disintegrate into the meal. But when they're fresh, I use them in cocktails. I pop them into cheesecake. I really, really adore them and you can do so much with them. The other thing with the desert lime, you asked about desert lime, is because you can get quite a glut of this one because our finger lime, desert lime, Davidson plum, lily pillies, wattle seed, etc., they're plants that have been around and commercialised for about 20-odd years now. So there's quite a glut of those around. So when you get them, you can do a few things with them. You can use them fresh. You can dehydrate them. You can freeze them down and use them from the freezer. You can cut them up and turn them into little chips. Like they become quite hard. So when they're rehydrated, they swell up and come nice and soft and tasty. You can also use them in, like a lot of people have been freeze-drying them. So when they're freeze-dried at a low temperature, the quality of the product is quite intense. So the flavour is quite citrusy and acidy. And I actually use it for a preservative. And because of its high vitamin C and its antioxidants, you can use it to preserve food as well. So it's it's a real beauty. I I love it. Just for people that might not have tasted a desert lime or a finger lime or our listeners in other countries. So imagine it looks fairly much like a kind of knobbly lime or or the finger lime's actually a long, long and thin. But when you cut it open, it's almost like it's filled with caviar and they're little sort of balls that come out and they pop on your tongue and release this citrus juice. They're, They're quite unlike anything else in the world, I reckon. 
Yeah, they are. They're very unique. One of my professors was over in California and she sat at a restaurant and next door the people were eating these lovely finger limes. And she said, oh, did you get those from Australia? And they said, no, we grow them here in California. Oh, no. So it's interesting. Yeah, it's really interesting how our Australian native ingredients have been picked up and brought over to other countries, which is a shame for the industry because we need Australian businesses to have the economic value, I guess, of those products. But it is sought after across the world. I really like the little desert lime as well. It's only tiny, no bigger than a 10-cent piece or a 5-cent piece, but when they're fresh and they come straight off the tree, I actually just bite into them and eat them straight like that. They have some little tiny seeds, but you can either eat it or you can spit it out. But they've got a really fine skin, finer than the finger lime. But chefs are loving all of these new things as well. We're getting right into being able to utilise them in a whole range of different things. Dale. I'm hoping that we can talk you into sharing the recipe that we can put on our website. How on earth we narrow it down when there are so many <laughs> interesting things. <Yeah>. But <laughs> no, I'd love to do that. I'll, I'll put something up for sure. Thank you. Dale, is it your hope that sharing these bush foods with non-Indigenous people can help with the journey to reconciliation and, and true equality for all Australians? I think the sharing of food in any culture we love to sit around the barbie or the kitchen table or the picnic table, dining room, etc. When you share food, when you sit, I always think sharing food makes you want to talk about things. That you want to understand where that food comes from. You want to share what you did in the day. I think that's going to help heal the journey that Indigenous Australians and non-Indigenous Australians have, yeah. Mm, what a wonderfully simple and delicious resolution that would be. Mm. <laughs> and perhaps now's a good time to ask you about an organisation that I think has been formed only in a, the last year or so, the Bush Food Alliance. Can you tell us a bit about that and what that alliance is hoping to achieve? Yes, we got together with 200 Indigenous leaders who are all bush foodies across the nation. And because of that survey that came out that said that Aboriginal people were only 1% of the bush food industry, we really felt that we needed to have a voice and lead the bush food industry and have a little bit more than 1%. <laughs> so that little group decided we were there for three days or something and we formed this network of people we have reps from each state and each territory who then have their individual people in the state that collaborate and feed information back to the, the bigger body. The thing for us is really having a voice that we can tell our story but also look at certification because bush food has been something that's just sort of, as you know, popped up and has started to get traction in the last five years, really. And that's come from overseas. And the overseas clients are asking us for authenticity. How do we connect with Indigenous foods and peoples of Australia? And if they're not part of that journey, then 
what is it? So that's been really interesting hearing that people from overseas are actually driving that conversation now. And we as Indigenous people have always thought we do need to be part of it. And it will, in my opinion, help to monitor the input of bush foods. We'll be able to share a lot better the price point, you know, for everyone to buy bush food, sometimes we go, oh, gee, that's expensive. But, yes, it is a little bit more higher end than, you know, buying a regular tomato, but that's because no one knows too much about it and it's very hard to harvest. It's hard to store sometimes and we need to look at all of those things. There's so much that goes into the production of one particular Indigenous fruit or spice. So there's a whole journey that's still to be recognised. So obviously, Dale, one of our great loves on Extra Virgin Podcast is telling and sharing people's stories. But how do you use storytelling in your work and why? Well, I think people love to have a yarn, you know. (laughs) So storytelling to me just, I don't know, in our family it just comes natural. We just... We just yarn up. So I think, too, if you can tell your story, people connect with you. People will connect and enjoy and and have a desire to know more. And I think that's why Aboriginal people tell these stories. And we also like to share with everyone. Indigenous people have always opened up their arms to everybody to sit down around the table or the campfire and, just share what knowledge we have. And I think when people have knowledge, they have empowerment. And that's what we want from all our Australians, all our people who want to be part of what we're doing, you know. Mm. And it's true. We all do love a story around food, where it came from and who grew it and how it was collected and all those sort of things. Mm. Yes, Could you please explain what a dilly bag is and Mm -hmm. and can you tell us why you named your business that? (laughs) Yeah, okay. A dilly bag is, it's a shopping bag. It's the handbag. So dilly bags are made from a variety of different fibres. They are woven in territory and places like that where you don't see a lot of trees. It's very arid and dry. Hair was collected. Hair was made into rope, and that's made into dilly bags. In far north Queensland and southeast Queensland, we use lamandra grasses. There's a whole range of different fibres that's been woven and then woven into various designs, and all communities have their own designs. So all of the fibres and things that are used in making dilly bags, like the lamandra grass, for example, that story is woven into that particular bag, which takes us on the journey, the connection back to the plant, connection to the people, the connection to the land, and that resonates with me as why I started my business as the Dilly Bag all those years ago because both men, women and children would carry that bag and in there would go things like fire sticks. So it was very important to keep the fire sticks dry. People would go foraging and they would collect fruit. They had to put it in something, so they would put it into their dilly you'd carry ochre, you'd carry a whole range of things in that particular 
a little handbag. And I have seen so many beautiful dilly bags made across the nation and they're all that little bit different. They're all very special. So we work with ladies from Arnhem Land and they come into Queensland and we have a group of women every year that come and learn weaving. So we connect up the women from Arnhem Land, the women from far north Queensland who are all specialists in weaving. They come together and teach us other fellas how to do that. And the, the story and the connection there is just phenomenal. And the feeling that everyone gets is they never, ever want camp to stop. They just want to keep learning off each other. And I think that's the beauty of what nature brings to people, to civilization, to the world. I think I love nature and nature's encompassed in everything. Can you tell us why you called your company that? Yeah, when I woke up one morning and said to my hubby I was going to start a business, he, he looked at me real funny like and <laughs> said, oh, really? And I said, yep, I'm going to call it the dilly bag. And that's because everything was carried in that bag. Even today, I look I look at my handbag and I've got everything in that dilly, you know. <laughs> I've got all of those things that kept in that bag, which is my way of being able to share I guess, native food. So the dilly bag was a no-brainer for me. That's what my business was going to be called. Yeah. Del, you mentioned foraging earlier, and I belong to some online foraging groups, and there's been a few discussions lately mm -hmm. about the ethics of foraging for bush foods. Someone mentioned that some of them are actually protected. Can you tell us about that and also what your personal position is on non-Indigenous people harvesting wild bush foods? Yeah, foraging all of a sudden across the world has become a, a big thing, you know. Yeah. I think what that really comes back to is getting back to nature and our health. We want to be healthy. So we feel that by going back to the plant, back to the fruit that we can harvest, it is a way to enrich our bodies and our souls. And that, I guess, is why foraging is such a big thing these days. My terms around foraging is that just don't go picking anything. You need to go with good people who know their community, who understand what's healthy but also not poisonous, you know. We don't want to don't want to eat things that we shouldn't. And I have a great respect for anyone who's foraging and doing native foraging because it's a way of us connecting again. It's a way to get that information back to the rest of the world about these marvellous ingredients that just grow. But, you know, it's great for the ecosystem of the woodlands and the different areas. I just say just be careful when you go. You know, I think it's important to go with people who understand the space. You don't want to be damaging anything that's there and you only ever pick Aboriginal people only ever hunted and foraged for what they needed and left more for when you needed it again yeah. and that I think is the secret don't go in there and destroy your environment and gather everything up and be greedy it, it's about sharing and respecting of your space of that land hmm. okay well, before coronavirus, you focused on in-person workshops and cooking classes. 
And you also did events where the catering was based on foraged and native ingredients. But I understand that COVID has had a surprisingly positive impact on some aspects of your work. Yeah, yeah. look, when COVID hit, I kind of fell apart for a couple of weeks and thought, oh, goodness, what am I going to do? And then I had a big sit down and rethought how we deliver bush foods. So, of course, then I had to get tech savvy, which meant I probably had my first Zoom meeting ever <laughs> um, <laughs> in February, March. So it was very mind-boggling to realise that going virtual was actually going to save my business. And I had to pivot that business to make sure that people out there were still getting the information. So we've designed a range of cooking classes. So now I'm doing a a series of different webinars. I'm about to open a store from the Sunshine Coast. And what we are looking at there is people being able to come in in small groups and look at how to work bush food, how to take native ingredients, and I'm going to share my love and my passion of that with small groups. And I also do it online as well. So the idea is you'll come for a walk in my webinars through my store and we'll grab an ingredient and we will identify how we can implement it into our baking and diets, you know, for the future. I've done 15 videos. They're all being edited as we speak. At least I hope so. Wow. And um, so we're going to put them into little packages and there's also going to be a bush food kit that goes with those particular ones. Mm. And I'm also doing one for the education department because for years I've been travelling to schools and Mm. it takes a lot of energy and that Mm. to travel across the world and Australia. So this way I've designed a package that I can be in every classroom across the world, across the nation. So COVID hasn't done me harm at all as far as allowing my company to stretch further than Australia. So when you do an online cooking class, it goes everywhere. I've been really excited, been so excited about sharing it with more people across the world. That is exciting. And have those people been reaching out for the ingredients as well? Because obviously we all went into serious home cooking mode when we were in lockdown and everybody was being experimental and doing things that they don't normally do. Yes, and that was another thing that happened with corporates. You know, we had NAIDOC week. Now, NAIDOC week got stalled until, oh, when was it? November, I think. So normally it's celebrated in July. But a lot of our corporates across the nation, because they have staff all over Australia, this was a really wonderful way for me to connect them to Bush Foods. So I ran a series of cooking classes on webinars throughout Australia and those people actually bought our native ingredients and they were either cooking along with me or they had it later on and taped um, so that they could come back and make it themselves. So the feedback was really positive and one which made me go, oh, I can keep doing these webinars and sharing the ingredients and the recipes with a wider group of people who I probably wouldn't normally have reached out to or embraced. Can you tell us what NAIDOC Week is for people outside of Australia who might not know? Yeah, sure. NAIDOC Week is National Aboriginal and Islander Day of Observation was its original name. And we have now called it 
National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Day of Celebration. So NAIDOC is a day of celebration where all Indigenous peoples will gather and share and acknowledge their ancestors and whether it's dance, whether it's art, weaving, food, beverages, you name it, Aboriginal people want to share that. They want to show you how proud they are of their heritage and also what we've found is as this has gotten bigger and bigger and bigger every year, more non-Indigenous Australians are also embracing it, which is just fabulous for us. It makes us so proud of what we have to share, you know, the oldest living culture in the world. When you're talking about the online classes, where are the people coming from? Is it one country that's particularly interested in Indigenous food? Well, it's quite a variety of countries, but I did webinar for Indonesia. I've done it for Japan because I was in Japan the year before last, just doing some work with slow food. So the Japanese people are very interested in what Aboriginal Australia is doing. The other countries, uh, I guess the Netherlands, they're always into it. The German population has a really big interest in Australian native ingredients. I've found that China is actually very interested in our nutraceutical information. The Asian countries are very keen to know about not necessarily the food, but about the nutraceuticals, about health and well-being. They love to use native ingredients in their um, makeups, creams, rubs, etc. So it goes across lots of different businesses. So it could be beverage, it can be food, it can be cosmetic, it can be like Gumby Gumby, for example. You know, Gumby Gumby is being used in cancer research at the moment. So we're doing a lot with Gumby Gumby, trying to identify how we can utilise that across a number of different health spaces. Mm, that's fascinating. As well as Dale's tips and recipe ideas that we're going to put on the website, extravirginfoodandtravel.com, if you go to her own website, mydillybag.com.au, you'll be able to find the ingredients that we've talked about and others, and also her cookbook, which is called Kui Cuisine, a collection of everyday family recipes incorporating traditional Aboriginal flavours. It's exciting to think there's still so many different ingredients for us to try and it doesn't have to be difficult and that in time more of these native foods will be on our shopping lists and on our plates. Yes, Australia will be very much enriched through the sharing of these native foods and the stories. Do you have any final words for our listeners who might be a bit nervous about experimenting with them? Oh, look, I think just step outside that comfort zone. We all don't want to do things sometimes. One day I was in the Kimberley and I had to step off a, a cliff to <laughs> do some abseiling. And the only way I was going to get to the bottom was to step off that cliff. That's what we need to do. We need to just reach out and start experimenting with native foods. And you can always call me up, email me. I am very generous in giving out knowledge and information and happy to assist anyone with what they may have apprehension about. So yeah, just go online and give me an email. You are indeed very generous. And there you go, listeners, be brave like Dale. <laughs> well, thanks again, Dale. And, and thank you also to our listeners. We appreciate you joining us here at Extra Virgin. Until next time, bon voyage and bon appétit. You've been listening to Extra Virgin, a podcast for the Epicurious. 
You can get more great food and travel inspiration, including stories, recipes, reviews, and more at our website, extravirginfoodandtravel.com. You can also follow Extra Virgin Food and Travel on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, or email us at extravirginfoodandtravel at gmail.com. And if you like what we do, you can support us by buying us a virtual coffee at our website. If you haven't already, go to Apple, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts to download and subscribe so you never miss an episode. And please give us a like.